Welcome to Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general nature, does not take into consideration your personal circumstances or needs. All right, Shani. So we talked about how I was making you pork nachos. Last episode, yeah. Right. And it it happened. So what's... (laughs) I mean, what's the review? It was chef's kiss, mate. It was really, really good. If anyone wants to see pictures of it, it's in our Investing Compass resources link, which is in the bio. But there's pictures of the nachos. There's pictures of Mark holding my dog. It's all very nice. Yeah. 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 No, it's it's very <laughs> exciting. I'm sure the website will crash with the amount of traffic <laughs> yeah. that it gets. The other, the other exciting thing, we haven't talked about this in a while, mm. but we talked about how you were in class. So you were back in uni while working full time, and now you're done. I'm done for this semester. I have to go back at some point. But well, I know, but yeah. <laughs> I am done. It's very exciting. It's supposed to be a good thing. Yeah, okay. I have all this spare time that I don't know what to do with. I mean, I should probably sleep, but I mean, <laughs> to be to be completely fair, it's Wednesday, I and know. you finished on Monday. Yeah, so I have some time to think about it. Yeah, I'm just saying there hasn't been that much no. spare time. <laughs> anyway, let's get into the episode. So today we are going to talk about alternative investments. So this is a pretty big topic, but we are going to be very specific, and we're going to look at hedge funds and then venture capital and private equity. And the point of today's episode is to give you an understanding of the investment approaches that are being taken within these investment strategies and look at the ways that an average investor can get some benefits of these strategies within a portfolio, even if you can't directly access these investment vehicles. And before we get into specifics, we are going to take a journey. So we're going to take a journey to New Haven, (laughs) Connecticut, are you excited to take this trip with me, Shani? Um, why don't you get me excited, mate? What is in New Haven, Connecticut? Well, one thing that's in New Haven is some of the best pizza in the U.S. So there's Frank Pepe's, there's Sally's A Pizza. <laughs> and as you know, I lived in Boston for a while and I frequently drove down to Southern Connecticut. That's where my mother lived or to New York, which is past there. And I would stop and get this pizza and it's cooked in this coal-fired oven and all of it is amazing, but they have this clam pizza, which just can't be described. Yeah, I'm assuming this whole episode isn't on pizza and your pork nachos, but I you know, I wouldn't have a problem with it, but I think we'd probably have to rebrand. Yeah, yeah, which maybe wouldn't be a bad thing, but yeah. <laughs> a distinct second to pizza. But New Haven also has another attraction, and that is Yale University. And I've spent hours standing in line in the snow trying to get or waiting to get my hands on that pizza. But no matter how long I stood outside of Yale University, they would just not let me into that unit. (laughs) But anyway, we're not going to talk about the academic institution. Instead, we're going to talk about Yale Management Company, which is an entity of the school that is responsible for investing their endowment. So in 1985, a guy by the name of David Swenson quit his job on Wall Street and showed up to run the endowment office at the university back when running an endowment office was a boring job with very little pay or recognition. And when Dave Swenson walked into the job, the Yale endowment had around a billion dollars. When he passed away at 67 years old in May of 2021, the endowment had $31 billion. What makes this track record even more remarkable is that the endowment would have been worth $45 billion if the withdrawals to support the university hadn't been made. And this had a profound impact on the university. In 1985, the endowment supported 10% of the operating cost of the university, and now it supports 33% of the cost. But my favorite thing that Dave Swenson um, said, it's a quote I uncovered while researching him. He said that his early career on Wall Street was a lot of fun, but it didn't satisfy his soul. And that's why he took the job at Yale 
university. Yeah. Shani loves things like that. Yeah. So Shani will literally, <laughs> she'll spend hours watching videos of soldiers returning home. Yeah. And then they get reunited with their pets and she'll keep watching this until she starts crying. Yeah, exactly. So everyone needs a good cry mark and, you know, it'd do you some good to get emotional about something other than a clam pizza? But yeah, well, you know, it's hard to know how to respond to that, but I will add that if you tried this pizza, you'd be pretty emotional about it as yeah, well. Yeah, okay. Well, anyway, when Dave Swenson, and he probably went there a lot. That's probably why he took the job. Mm. Now, that's speculation on Is my that part. Sa- do you think that would satisfy his soul? Probably. Yeah, okay. Probably. Right. So, good pizza then. Exactly. So when Dave Swenson took over the Yale Endowment, um, it and basically all endowments were pretty boring. So it was kind of just a 60-40 mix of shares and bonds. And he changed all of that, and it had a profound impact on how endowments and many other investors approached managing a portfolio. So why don't you walk us through that, Shani? Well, instead of simply investing in shares and bonds, he started investing in all types of different asset classes. He invested in timberland, the land filled with trees and not the wrapper, real estate, and several other alternative strategies. In fact, at times, he invested 75% of the endowment assets in these alternative investments. And we'll talk about those alternative investments in a second. But first, we need to spend a minute on his goals. Because as we say over and over again on this podcast, every investment decision needs to start with your goals in mind. So let's start with what his goals were. And now I'll put his investment decisions within the appropriate context. Running an endowment means that you need to fund yearly withdrawals to support the institution that's being endowed. So in this case, Yale University. But along with funding those yearly withdrawals, the endowment also has to last forever. So you have to focus on the long term. And this sounds somewhat like retirement. I mean, except for that forever part, right? Unless you're immortal. (laughs) Well, immortal or not, while retirement doesn't last forever, it's still a period of time when you need annual withdrawals to support yourself and you need to invest for the long term. So it is pretty similar. Yeah. And we'll get back to those similarities a little later. But first, let's focus on how Dave Swenson invested to achieve his goal. So this huge allocation to alternatives was divided between absolute return strategies using hedge funds and private assets, which included private equity and venture capital. He invested in absolute return strategies because he wanted to find investments that would perform well in any environment, which would help facilitate the withdrawals needed to support the university. And he invested in private assets because he didn't care that they weren't liquid because he had a time frame of, well, forever. So if these concepts aren't 100% clear, we'll get into them in a bit. So let's start with the absolute return side of things, which means we will talk about hedge funds. Hedge fund is a very misunderstood term, so let's start with some basics. When legislation was introduced for mutual funds in the US, the goal was to protect investors. There were numerous safeguards introduced to prevent misappropriation of funds, but there was also provisions that prevented them from taking on too much risk, which would subject mutual fund investors to losses. This includes a rule forbidding shorting and making it very difficult to employ more than a moderate amount of leverage. So why don't you explain those two terms for everyone, Mark? Yeah, so shorting a share means borrowing shares and then selling them. You, of course, make money from selling the shares you don't own, but you do need to give them back. So that means at some point in the future, you need to purchase them and return them. So to make a profit, you need the share price to go down so you can buy it cheaper than the price you sold it for. Shorting is risky because while there is a limit to how much you can lose when you buy a share, because it can't fall below zero, which would just result in you losing all of your money, There is no limit to how much you can lose shorting a share, since a share price can keep going up forever. Now, there's leverage, which simply means that you are borrowing money to invest in shares. We talked about this with housing, but borrowing and investing money can amplify both your returns if prices go up, but also amplify your losses if prices go down. So this is also pretty risky. 
With some of these investing approaches outlawed for mutual funds, a new entity formed that did not have any of these restrictions. Because the risk of these strategies was greater, the regulators made a stipulation that only sophisticated investors were allowed to invest. Sophisticated was defined as being an institutional investor, like an endowment, or having a sufficient level of wealth. Yeah, and on the surface, this is a little ridiculous, right? That wealth is equated with sophistication, but as they say, the rules are the rules. So interestingly enough, before the term hedge fund was invented, one of the first of these funds was started by Ben Graham, who, of course, is the author of The Intelligent Investor. And the term hedge fund was coined in the late 1940s and refers to the notion of hedging, which is an investment term for managing investment risk. That is because both shorting and leverage, when employed properly, can be a form of risk management. And that's how hedge funds started. They started as long-short funds. What this means is that they would take long positions and short positions, and they would do this to manage risk. A simplistic example is you take two companies that essentially do the same thing. Let's use the example of Coke and Pepsi. You study these two companies and you decide that Pepsi will outperform Coke, and you take a long position in Pepsi and an equal short position in Coke. You're essentially making a bet that Pepsi will, on a relative basis, do better than Coke. In this case, you don't care at all about the overall market return or even the absolute return of Pepsi. If Coke goes down 50% and Pepsi goes down 40%, you still win because the profit you make being short Coke will outweigh the losses from being long Pepsi. These long-short hedge funds could use this strategy on all sorts of things, but either way, they are mostly hedging market risk or the risk the overall market would perform poorly. Depending upon the approach, this could result in the hedge fund giving positive returns in a down market or at least minimizes losses when compared to the market. Yeah, and let's pause to make a couple points here, which I think are relevant. The way we describe the long-short portfolio sounds really easy, but the execution of this strategy is harder in practice. Many of the hedge fund strategies have a level of complexity that doesn't that simply doesn't exist in a long-only portfolio. Second thing we need to address before talking about absolute return strategies is that the way that diversification is often described between shares and bonds just simply isn't true. I hear over and over again people say that the reason you buy shares and bonds is because when shares do poorly, then bonds do well, and that you're essentially hedging your portfolio. Well, you aren't. That isn't true. So when interest rates go down, both shares and bonds typically perform well. When interest rates go up, typically shares and bonds do poorly, which means you have to hedge your portfolio in a different way. And that's why hedge funds need to take more sophisticated approaches, which brings us to absolute return funds. Hedge funds start as long-short funds, but there are uh, all sorts of new investments that have sprung up within the hedge fund universe since then. We aren't going to talk about them all today, but we will focus on absolute return strategies because that's what Dave Swenson heavily used at Yale, and that aligns with the idea that a hedge fund is used to hedge an investment risk. Absolute return funds are designed to generate positive returns in any environment. So in theory, you get a positive return if the market goes up, down, or sideways. And this played a really specific role in endowment portfolio because of of the specific goals that Dave Swenson wanted to achieve, namely lower the volatility of a portfolio to ensure that the annual withdrawals can be supported. Morningstar Premium is designed to help you reach your investing goals. Our coverage spans over 50,000 securities and 2,000 funds and ETFs. Sign up to a four-week free trial through the link in the episode notes to access our global equity best ideas for our top picks across borders. Find shares with sustainable, above-average dividend payouts and the best opportunities at home with five-star Aussie stocks. A Morningstar Premium subscription includes a ShareSide investor plan, allowing you to track all of your investment holdings in one place. And take advantage of ShareSide's investment performance and tax reporting that has been built specifically for the needs of self-directed investors. 
If you love premium after your four-week trial and choose to subscribe, your subscription may be tax-deductible if you derive income from the share market. Sign up for a free trial today. So let's turn our attention to private markets. We will talk through private equity and venture capital. Before we get into a definition, we want to once again look at the role it plays in Dave Swenson's portfolio. He needed to continue to generate returns far into the future since the endowment will exist in perpetuity. And this is where we need to discuss the liquidity premium. So liquidity refers to the ability to sell your investment and get your money back, so get cash back as soon as possible. And investors like liquidity, and they probably like it way too much which is one of the reasons that ETFs, which of course you can buy and sell at any time during a trading day, are more popular than managed funds. So the idea of a liquidity premium is that investors are compensated for giving up liquidity. And how are they compensated for less liquidity? With higher returns. When we look at private equity and venture capital, we have no liquidity as you generally have to wait at least seven to 10 years to get your money back. So the idea is that if you have a long investment time horizon like an endowment, you will earn a premium or extra return by locking up your money for a longer time period. Before looking at the implications, let's take a look at private equity and venture capital. So why don't we start with private equity? What is it, Mark? Okay. When a company decides to sell their shares to investors on an exchange, it is called going public. The company becomes a publicly traded company, which means anyone can buy part of it. Private equity firm amasses a large pool of money from investors and then goes out and looks for companies to acquire in their entirety. This process of buying all the shares is taking the company private. This can either be by an acquisition of all the shares of a public company, or it can be the purchase of a division of a company, which can then be run separately or combined with another private company. The private equity fund that purchases this company is doing it in order to sell it again in the future. That sale could go to another private company or to a publicly traded company, or they could just take the company public again through an IPO. There are a couple of different ways to make this process successful. The first is that the asset is being purchased by the private equity firm and it's truly undervalued. They've spotted a bargain and all they need to do is simply wait a while until the market realizes the mistake they've made and then they can sell this asset back through an IPO or through a direct sale to a public company. The second way that this can be successful is that the private equity firm fixes a broken company which makes it worth more. This could be because the company is run terribly and all it needs is new management which will put it in a better place strategically, or better execution of strategy, or that the company is not optimizing its capital structure. Once the company is quote-unquote fixed, it can be sold again for a gain. Okay, so let's dig into these different options for success. And we can start with the undervalued asset. So back when private equity started in the 80s, this was very much a thing. If anyone has seen Wall Street, the first Wall Street, That is essentially what Gordon Gekko was doing with Blue Star Airlines. So remember, Shani, there was that scene where Bud Fox walks into a conference room and hears some guy talking about selling off the gates and the routes and talking about the overfunded pension plan. Well, that is buying an undervalued asset, breaking it up into parts and selling it off for more it's worth. Well, that was a lot easier to do before the explosive growth of private equity. In the past decade, private equity assets, or the amount of money available to fund deals, has grown by 170%. With this growth, the market has gotten more efficient, just like when we talk about public markets. And the more investors pay attention to a market, like large cap shares, the more efficient it is. That means it becomes harder and harder to find these undervalued companies. So it's a lot harder to find bargains right now than in Gordon Gecko's days. I'm glad that watching 80s movies has paid off to help 
people learn a little bit more about investing well. Yeah. Well, yeah. we should do we should do a whole episode on investing lessons from Top Gun, which, as you know, is one of my favorite movies. And once again, something you have not seen. Mm, I'll have to watch it before we do that then. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the funny thing about Wall Street is that they never say private equity. And the reason for that is because it wasn't a term. They used it. They used to call the firms and people did, 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 that did this corporate raiders, but that didn't have the best connotation. So they just rebranded right to private equity. And if you ever want to read an incredible book on 80s corporate raiders, you should read Barbarians at the Gate. I feel like everyone's getting a bit of everything from Investing Compass today. You know, now we've got movie and book recommendations. Yeah. So you have you need no other entertainment. No, exactly. This is it. This, this is, is your content. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so let's continue our look into private equity and how they make money. Second approach is to somehow fix a company before selling it again. To fix a company strategically or operationally is pretty hard, but some private equity firms specialize in turnarounds. Without the scrutiny of public markets and the short-term thinking of investors, this is another approach that private equity can take. Without all the public disclosures, the agitating from shareholders that accompany a public-traded company, you can actually spend some time as a manager getting work done. But the last piece of fixing a company, which you described as optimizing capital structure, is another approach. So in plain English, this means taking on a huge amount of debt, using that debt to fund special dividends that are paid out to private equity investors, and then selling a debt-ridden company back into public markets. In reality, most private equity firms are probably employing a combination of all of these techniques. Trying to find something mispriced, trying to turn it around, and then taking on more debt to reward the owners of the company, in this case themselves. And as you can imagine, as interest rates have gotten lower, this has made it easier for private equity firms to raise money and to borrow money to fund these acquisitions. And in many cases, you see consortiums between private equity firms and other investors with very long time horizons like pension funds, endowments, and super funds who team up to purchase companies. We've actually seen this a lot in Australia, in particular with infrastructure assets. Yeah, which is frustrating to me. Because you I know I complain to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like half the things that I own in Australia have been bought. But we'll cover that off. We'll do an end of year portfolio checkup where I can complain about that for the entire episode. Mm. Um, all right. So we've, we've talked about private equity. Why don't we move on to venture capital, Shani? All right. So like private equity, venture capital also deals with private companies. But in this case, we're talking about startups. A venture capital firm funds startups in exchange for ownership stakes in companies that are just getting started. The classic story is a couple of people decide to start some tech startup in their garage with an idea and a little bit of cash from their friends and family. And then once they've made some progress, they start to go through different rounds of venture capital funding that allows them to further develop their idea and eventually bring it to market. Right. And then eventually this public, yeah, goes public or it's bought by like Google or Facebook. Mm. They then become billionaires. Yeah. They marry a supermodel, <laughs> and then they take revenge on all the kids that picked on them in high school. Yeah, it's just the new American dream, eh? Yeah, yeah. no, exactly. And I imagine someone who still loved Harry Potter into high school, you probably have <laughs> a long list of people to get revenge against. All right, so let's um, not get too deep into my high school experience. So let's turn our attention back to venture capital. As a venture capital investor, you're investing in potential rather than something tangible that already exists. You have to see far out into the future to imagine what this idea might become. So rather than an analysis of the current cash flow generating capabilities of a company, you're really taking a bet on an idea and the people behind the idea. If that idea is to create a social media company and it turns into the next Facebook, you make billions. This can be extremely lucrative. The first outside investor in Facebook was Peter Thiel, who took a 10% ownership stake in the company for $500,000. Thiel sold his shares for close to a billion dollars when Facebook went public. If he would have held on to them until today, he would have been worth $94 billion. 
That's a lot. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And the problem is that these successes are far from common and most companies just don't make it. So in order to be a good venture capitalist, you need to be able to judge both people and ideas, but you also need to help them along the way once you have an ownership stake. So many of the entrepreneurs have ideas and some sort of deep technical knowledge, but they don't know how to run a business. And that is where venture capital firms help. And they can also introduce them to a network of people that can help them with subsequent rounds of financing and growing the business and all the different things you need to do to be successful. All right. So this is actually... We're like the boy who cried wolf. That we said we weren't going to do this again. This <laughs> yeah. So this is a this is a two part series. Now Apologies. we didn't we didn't yeah. say it at the beginning, but we'll put it into we'll put it into the actual episode, mm-hmm. so people are aware this isn't a surprise. Exactly. But we went through obviously sort of the basics. We talked about pizza. We went through the basics <laughs> of, uh, of hedge funds, venture capital, and private equity. And then in the next episode, we're going to talk about if and how you should get exposure to these asset classes as an investor. So hopefully that will be an exciting one. Mm -hmm. We will be back with our second episode in a week. So once again, we would love it if you could share this podcast with your friends and family. And we, of course, would love ratings and any comments that you have. So thank you very much. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.